in April of this year, the National Geographic uh, magazine published an article, and the title of the article was The World's Newest Major Religion, and the subtitle was No Religion. And this article documented the rise of the so-called nuns, those who have no religious affiliation. And in the article, they explained that the nuns make up a majority of the population in Europe. And in our country, nearly 25% of the population would be classified as uh, in that category of having no religious affiliation whatsoever, agnostics, atheists, uh, such as that. Um, We recognize that in Western cultures, there is a real commitment as a starting point or as a foundational point. There's a real commitment among those who are uh, the movers and the shakers or those who are in positions of power to secularism. That is, the rejection of the notion of God. There's this sense in which God can't exist. This world is all that there is. It's a naturalistic worldview. And so the starting point excludes God from from the beginning. And so there's a sense in which today to, to um, have any kind of cultural capital, you have to buy into all that the world has to say. You've got to be committed to, to evolution. You've got to be committed to naturalism. You can't buy into what the Bible has to say about morality because no one wants to hear your antiquated ideas of how to live, Right? And so today, if you're going to be a faithful Christian, a Bible-believing Christian, one who actually holds to what is taught in this book, it's going to cost you something. It's going to to make you stick out a bit. You see, in the past, everyone sort of went to church. Maybe everyone's a bit of an overstatement. But in general, the expectation was that you went to church. And that wasn't odd or strange. That was normal and expected. In a sense, going to church was a bit like wearing camo. You just blended in. But today, to be a Bible-believing Christian and to really hold to what this book teaches, well, that's not like wearing camo. That's like wearing Hunter's Orange, right? I mean, you're going to stick out. It's going to make you a little bit strange to say, I really believe there's a God who created this whole world. I don't believe it's some giant cosmic accident. I believe that life has meaning. I believe that how we live matters, and I don't believe that I get to chart my own course and go wherever, wherever I want to go. I, I don't believe that. I believe that, that the Bible spells out a system of, of behavior that, that will help us live lives that are, that are better and good for people and, and good for families. But most importantly, I believe there's a Savior who came and who left heaven and who came to this earth and lived a perfect life and was nailed to a cross and was buried. And he, yes, he did rise from the dead he was raised from the dead and i believe in him i want to follow him and to be there well that will definitely make you wear hunter's orange especially when you add and he is the only way into a relationship with god he is the only way to eternal life which is the bible's clear testimony and this morning we'll conclude our series called unstoppable and this has been based on matthew 16 18 where jesus said that he would build his church And the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. And so we recognize that God has a plan, an eternal plan. And it includes his church, his people. And he's going to accomplish it. So ultimately, is God's plan going to fail? The clear clear answer from the word is it will not fail. Jesus said that. But that does not mean, as I've said the last couple weeks, that each individual expression of the church, each local church, like First Baptist Church of Valley, it doesn't mean that we're destined not to fail. It doesn't mean that 
that we're unstoppable, though certainly by the power of God and in faithfulness to him, we want to be unstoppable. We want to be faithful into the future. Now, we've looked at these numbers for the past couple weeks, and we're going to look at them one more time this morning. So let's take a look at this graph. This kind of tells you uh, the big picture in the numbers. And again, numbers don't tell the whole story. There's, you can have great numbers and be unfaithful. So, so understand all of that when we look at this. But, but numbers do tell a story that we need to think about. In 1882, First Baptist Church Uvalde started with around, some of you know, 10 charter members. Um, and by... 1960, on the second Sunday in September, which is generally a good attended Sunday in the church, there were 469 people in Bible study on Sunday before worship or in Sunday school class. Uh, In worship, there were probably more, but we don't have records for for worship attendance. By 2010, the number who gathered uh, for Sunday school was about 160, and that's about where we're at today. Now, obviously, these, these numbers show a trend, and it's not a trend in the direction that you really want to go. And so the question that I have is, will we be, as we talked about last week, one of those churches that closes its doors, or will we be a church that's revitalized and gains strength and has a gospel witness well into the future, well into the future? Now, Romans 12 today is going to help us as we think about what it means to be unstoppable. Because a church is going to be faithful to God well into the future when the people who are a part of the church are faithful. You understand that truly this, the strength of a, a church, remember a church is composed of those who are, who are believers, who have committed and, and committed together to membership. A church is really only as strong as we are. So, so if... If the church, all of us, doesn't jump in and do our part, then we're not going to be who God has called us to be. We, we can't be. So Romans 12 is going to help us as we think through this more. Now remember Romans 1 through 11 has been a powerful statement of God's grace and of how he saves people, not because of the good things that we do, but because of who he is, because of his character. And so basically Romans 12 says, because God is all of these great things, this is how you and me. This is how we ought to live. And so let's look together. We'll be in verses 9 through 21 today. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those, who, bless, who, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Believe it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with, this, with good. In this passage, we see three ways that we're called to live a life of true love. Three ways that we're called to live a life of true love. First, we must love God truly. 
We must love God truly. Look in verse 9. Paul says here, let your love be genuine. Now, as we think about this idea of love, we know that really this is the ultimate Christian virtue. Jesus was approached by one of the scribes, and he said, what's the greatest commandment? And in Mark 12, 30, Jesus said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God. Verse 31, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So this is a starting point. This is the greatest Christian ethic, if you will, is that we have a love for God and and a love for each other. Notice here that our love is to be genuine. Our love for God, our love for others, it's to be genuine. This means that we're not trying to put on a show to act one way and then to come over here and be something else. To say one thing here in this scenario or in this context, but then over here in this context to tell a different story. No, Paul is saying, let your love be true. Let it be genuine, not pretend. We're not playing dress up here, Paul says. We're We're meaning what we're saying. We really want to love God. We really want to love other people. Verse 11, we'll skip down and we'll come back and forth because Paul just gives a whole series of of exhortations here. But in verse 11, he says, do not be slothful in zeal. What's he saying? Don't be lazy in your passion for God. Now, this is a real possibility. You see, it's possible to come to know Jesus and to realize that you're going to spend, you're going to spend uh, eternity with him in heaven to be his child. But then it's possible to become sort of lazy in your walk with him. You just sort of coast. You're not really making time to, to read the word and to pray. You're just sort of lazy. You, you know what I'm saying. We've, we've been there. Most of us have been there at some point in our spiritual lives. But Paul says, don't be lazy. Be passionate. Be serious. Don't be complacent. Give it your all in your love for God and in your passion for him. And he says, be fervent in spirit. This word here for fervent, this word could mean uh, to be set on fire or to boil over. The, the Greek word here could mean to be set on fire or, or, again, this picture of boiling over. So in the spirit, Paul says, instead of becoming lazy and complacent, instead be set on fire in your love for him. Let your love for him boil over. Let it, let it be powerful. Let it be real in your life. That, that's, what, that's what Paul's saying. In verse 21, he says this. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We know that one of the marks of a Christian who loves God is a desire to obey him. So it's one thing to say, yeah, I love God, I'm a, I'm a follower of his, but it's another thing to truly obey him. And we don't obey him to earn his love. That's, that's not reality. But, but John 14, 21, Jesus says, whoever loves me will obey my commands. Our love for him is expressed by living a life that's good. So, so we don't seek to respond to evil with evil, but instead we seek to respond to evil with good and that's a mark of our love for God. It's a way that, that we show that our love for him is true and real. Now in May of 2016, there was a, a huge fire in Houston. Some of you may remember hearing about it in the news. There was a, a big uh, building caught on fire. There was a possibility of uh, hazardous materials, concern about that in the midst of this fire. Huge fire. Uh, around 175 firefighters, over 60 trucks began to fight this blaze. Dark smoke was seen from miles and miles away. And eventually they, they put the fire out. But as we think about fire, 
We can, we can say that fire is often devastating. Sometimes fire can be used for great good, but fire is often devastating. We can say with fire that things don't stay the same. Once something's set on fire, it doesn't remain the way that it was. Fire provokes a response. It's not like you're going to be, you know, laying in bed with your, your husband or your wife and you turn over and go, oh, the kitchen's on fire. What's on TV? No, it provokes a response. You're going to get up. You're going to do something because fire is to be taken seriously. We recognize that fire is almost alive. It, it's consuming. It's dynamic. And Paul draws a parallel to this notion of fire to what's happening inside of us. Our love for Christ ought to be like a fire. And I, we said that fire was devastating, and I don't mean that our love for Christ is going to be devastating, but it will be devastating for the sinful tendencies that are in our hearts. It won't let those rest. It won't let those lie. If our hearts are on fire, we're going to be having an impact on the people around us. We're not going to be ho-hum in our walk with Christ. So we, we need to think about this. Are our hearts on fire for him because that kind, of, that kind of faith impacts other people. It challenges other people. So let's think about how this idea of loving God truly applies in our lives today. First, we can say that your love for Christ ought to be characterized by words like alive, passionate, vibrant. So I ask you, brother or sister, is your relationship with Christ today more like a flame that's blazing or more like a dead carcass on the side of the road? Is your love today like a tree that's filled with green leaves? Or is it more like a tree that looks like it's been dead for some years? You see, our love for God ought to be deepening. Our love for God ought to be shaping, ought to be shaping us in every level. So if you want to love God, your spiritual life is not going to be characterized by laziness. It's not going to be characterized by um, a status quo kind of an attitude. Instead, you're going to be making time to read the Word. You're going to be making time to be in prayer. You're going to be making time to, to study the Word and, and to memorize the Word. You'll also make time to gather with other believers, recognizing that's one of the primary ways that God encourages us to grow in him as we as we talk to each other as we pray for each other as we meet together that's one of the primary ways that God shapes us so instead of gathering together as brothers and sisters in Christ when we can work it into our calendar I'll try to I need I better go to church hadn't been there this no this is just who we are it's the rhythm of our lives why because we don't want to be lazy in our spiritual lives and we have something to bring to the table to help others and we also receive from others as we gather together for worship. So second, as we think through the application of loving God truly, your walk with God ought to result in a growing dislike and hatred towards sin. It ought to result in a growing dislike and hatred towards sin. James 4.4 4 says, you cannot be friends with the world. To be a friend of the world is hatred toward God. So we're not going to bathe in the filth of the world. When the world throws media at us that's filled with a bunch of garbage and filth, instead of just taking it in and saying, ah, oh, this is funny, this is okay, this is cool. No, as believers, we begin to say, I don't want that. Our, our taste begins to change. Why? Because as we grow in Christ, we begin to abhor evil. Isn't that 
what he says in verse 9, we begin to dislike. We don't want the stuff that's wrong anymore. We don't want that in our lives anymore. We're also not allowing the deceptive philosophies and intellectual arguments of the world to take us captive. Why? Because we're recognizing, we're recognizing that our minds and our hearts ought to be shaped by this book and not by an evil philosophy that rejects God as a starting point. So, we need to say when it comes to sin, sin is not something that we can coddle or play around with. You know how the puppy's always cute when it's little and then it grows up? Well, sin is like that. It may start really sweet and cute and it seems great, but eventually it grows up and and it turns into something that's not at all pretty often, something that can bring a lot of trouble and heartache. And so if we are going to be growing in our faith, there ought to be a disdain for sin, a growing dislike for that which is evil. Number three, as we think about what it means to truly love God, your walk with God ought to be marked by endurance, hope, and prayer. It ought to be marked by endurance, hope, and prayer. And we see that in verse 12, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation and constant in prayer. Look, this life is, is tough. We, we know that. There are a lot of difficulties and hardships that we have to endure. And if we're going to grow in our love for God, instead of abandoning ship, when the hard times come, we've got to keep trusting him. That means that, you know what? Sometimes I'll hear people say, man, I was trying to walk with God and then he let this happen in my life. And I said, forget it. If he's going to allow that, then I'm done. We can't be like that, brothers and sisters. This scriptures are full. They're full of examples of the fact that life is tough this side of heaven. After the fall, life here is hard. It's tough. So if we're going to love God, we've got to be willing to trust him even in the days that we don't understand him. We've got to be willing to, to, per, to be patient in the midst of tribulation. We've got to be willing to maintain hope. How do we maintain hope? We remember that if we're in Christ, this world is not the end of the story. We recognize that there's a better day coming And things may change here and get better, and we pray that they do. But even if they don't, brothers and sisters, we have a hope, a hope that's real, hope that's true. Paul says if you're going to love God, you've got to have that kind of hope. And connected to this hope and this patience in the midst of tribulation is to be constant in prayer, Paul says. To be committed to prayer, to call out and to bring our needs and our struggles to God, to to do that constantly. That's what Paul says. So if we're going to walk with God and love him, we have got to be ready to live lives that are marked by endurance and hope and prayer. As we think through what it means to truly love God, fourth, we need to ask, what impact does a believer whose faith has grown cold who kind of laughs at sin, makes light of sin, or who's marked by a certain bitterness toward God, or we could give all sorts of examples. What impact does a cold heart toward the Lord and the life of a believer have on other people? What effect does it have on the church? What effect does it have on the people that God has placed you in in their realm of influence? Because we always want to say, as people, we're just like this, and especially in an American context, we always want to say, it's me and Jesus. Get out of my business. It's me and Jesus. But what we have to recognize is this vertical relationship has impact horizontally, and it's meant to. The scriptures are full of that. And so when we say, hey, get out of my business. It's me and Jesus. We're denying a whole lot of this book. A whole lot of this book reminds us that what's happening here has great impact here. 
great impact within the church and also outside of the church in the lives of unbelievers. Um, when I was a boy, a uh, little boy in elementary school, I remember reading uh, a poster that one of the teachers had up, and it said a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And as a little boy, I thought about that and thought I couldn't understand what it meant. I, it's embarrassing to say I couldn't understand what it meant. What does it mean that a chain is only as strong as its weakest link? But of course, all of us recognize exactly what that means. You see, sometimes it's fair to say that we can only be as strong. We can only be what God has called us to be when everybody's on board. When everybody's saying, you know what? Man, I'm giving my all for this. I'm not playing games. I, I'm going to bring what I have. Maybe I don't think that what I have is that significant, but I'm going to bring it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be what God has called me to be. I'm not going to be the weak link that, that keeps God from moving here in a powerful way. I, I don't want to be that. I want to love God, and I want to serve him faithfully. So we've seen that we must love God truly, but second, we must love each other truly. We must love each other truly. That, that's what's clear in the scripture. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly love. The, the Greek word, therefore, love has the idea of brotherly love, and, and you see that, that idea in the next, with brotherly affection. So, so there's this idea that when we love each other, we're to love each other as we love a family. Well, how do we love family? We stick with them. There are days that are frustrating, but we stick with them. We're there for them. That is a picture of the kind of love that we should have as brothers and sisters who are part of a church family. We, we're, we're with, we're with you. That, that's the idea. The church should be an extension and a sense of, of your family. You should, you should feel that kind of support, and likewise, you should provide that kind of support. Again, remember this, it's me and Jesus stuff. It doesn't fit well with the scriptures, does it? It just doesn't. And so he also says in verse 10, outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. What does that mean? Paul's saying, don't try to get the spotlight. Don't want, every, don't want everything to be about you. Instead, try to exalt others. Try to give others, uh, uh, encourage others, and, and let others be first. Again, this, this just really goes against our natural tendencies, doesn't it? But that's what a family of faith is supposed to be, a people who've been transformed by the grace of God. Shaped and changed, who put others ahead of ourselves. Paul says here, verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints. If there are brothers and sisters who have needs, like real physical need, material needs, as, as a part of a church family, we ought to try to meet those. We ought to try to, tr- try to help. When, when there's someone struggling and, and, and they need help, we, we need to pitch in and do that. that. That's what the church has been called to do. Again, notice the, commu- the, the notion that we're a group. It's not just me and Jesus, but it's us. Um, the scripture is full of that, and yet somehow we, we keep ignoring it. He goes on to say, show hospitality. That is, be willing to have people in your home and to, to uh, uh, welcome people and, and to be kind to people. Uh, if they have, need a place to stay, for example, a brother and sister, be, be willing to, to provide that if you can. That, that Paul is uh, uh, capturing that idea. A lot of the times he, during this time period, there were missionaries traveling around, and there weren't hotels everywhere. You know, those, those were rare in the ancient world. So he was saying, as Christians, be willing to open your home up. In verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. What's Paul saying? Share life together. As, as a family, as a church family, that means that, that when good things are happening, you rejoice with each other. And when tough things come up, you, 
you stay together. You, you walk alongside one another. That, that's what Paul's saying. Verse 16. In verse 16, Paul says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. So we ought to make it our goal as brothers and sisters in Christ, as a church family, to be unified. Of course, we're unified around uh, the word. We're unified around the mission that God has called us to give. So we ought to seek harmony. One of the keys to this, Paul makes clear, is not to be haughty, not to think more of ourselves than we ought, not to be proud, as he goes on to say in this verse. So we need to be careful and ask God to, to help us walk in humility and not in pride, because pride is one of the key things that destroys the harmony of a church. As we think about this scripture, it's clear that every person who's a believer is meant to be a part of a church family, not just on the outskirts, but actually a part, connected. Now, before I came here to this church, there was a man who was a part of this church family who, who had some real serious need. He li- his living conditions were very poor. The church came together. Again, this was all before me. The church came together, raised money, and they built him a house. And he kind of had some challenges, and the church walked alongside him, and they were right there with him. Now, that's a picture of what's supposed to be happening. Every person won't have that level of need. But when we're a family, when we recognize it's just not me and Jesus, it's me and Jesus definitely, but it's, it's us, it's us and him, then we're supposed to be that for each other. We're, we're supposed to try to meet needs. This is what you see in the book over and over again. So how do we apply this notion of loving one another? Well, first, love members of your church family much like you would love members of your own family, your extended family. That means be concerned for each other, help each other, love each other, warts and all. Doesn't mean that you're gonna like everybody in the church. Doesn't mean you're gonna enjoy everybody in the church. Do you like everyone in your family when you have a family reunion? You enjoy it. No, no, but they're your family. You're committed to them. So we have this sense in a church. We're committed to love each other. Not with a pretend love, but with genuine love. With true, real love. As we think about putting this into practice, this idea of loving each other, second, seek to honor fellow members and lift them up. Put others ahead of yourself. Don't try to to steal the spotlight. Put others ahead of yourselves. Third, help fellow church members. If you know of a physical need and you can help, then do that. Help if you can. Give, Give generously of your time. If somebody has a physical need and you can help with money, then then do that. Try to help each other, to meet real needs. Fourth, walk with each other through the joys and the sorrows of life. Celebrate milestones together. That's how we're supposed to, that's how we're supposed to uh, be as a church family. Celebrating news of a of a pregnancy or even loss of a first tooth or a promotion at work or an upcoming wedding and the life of a kid or a grandkid. But also as a family, we're supposed to grieve alongside each other in the midst of loss and of heartache. When the test results come back and they're bad. When there's a miscarriage. When we get that dreaded knock on the door in the middle of the night. You see, if you're a believer and you're part of a church family, you'll, you'll not walk in those times alone. You'll not be by yourself because if you've, if you've put your life in a fellowship and you've connected with people, there'll be people there beside you, with you. 
And that's how God wants it to be. He doesn't want us to be out by ourselves. He wants us to be connected for our good and for the good of others. We've got to get rid of this anemic view of the church that we've had. I can come if I want. It's an accessory. If I want to wear it, I can. If I don't, it's no big deal. That is not faithful to Scripture. That's the way the culture is. It is not what you see here. It's just not. No, we walk alongside one another. So the church is much more like a marriage than a birthday party. Much more like a marriage than a birthday party. We are committed for the long haul. For the good of all. And so we recognize that when we love each other like this, it's different. In John 13, verses 34 and 35, did you know that Jesus said that difference would be the very way that the world would know that what's going on here is real? They would see, uh, we won't take the time to read it, but look it up, John 13, 34 and 35. They're going to see, the people who are not believers are going to see that what's happening here is real because of the way that we really do love each other, the way that we really are committed to the good of each other. And one of my favorite authors says it this way, that a church that does that puts the gospel on display. Puts the gospel on display. What's the gospel? The gospel is that none of us can save ourselves, that none of us can be made right with God on our own, that we desperately need someone to rescue us. And the good news is that Jesus came, he left heaven, and he lived a perfect life, and he came for our rescue. And so you and I don't have to try to be good enough to be in a relationship with God. We don't have to try to earn his favor. No, we cry out to him and say, God, I've gone my own way. I've done my own thing, and I'm tired of doing that, God. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I believe in Jesus, and I want to follow him. And the scriptures say that when you do that, that God saves you, and he never lets go of you. Even when you fumble the ball, he's still holding on. What good news is that? And a church is meant to put that reality on display. And one of the ways we do that is by loving each other well, loving each other in the way that God has called us to. So we've seen that we're called to live a life of love for God, a a life of true love for each other. Third, we must love unbelievers truly. We must love unbelievers truly. Let's just briefly look at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Of course, he's echoing words of Jesus here. When people are coming at us and they're persecuting us or or they're against us, they're enemies, how do we respond? We strive to bless them. We we don't respond in kind. We, We don't act sinful toward them we try to be christ-like that's what jesus is saying here in verse 17 he says repay no one evil for evil so if someone does evil don't give them evil back you're just adding evil to evil when you do that don't be like that that's the way that's the way the world may be at times but that's not the way believers are called to live in fact he says do what's honorable in the sight of all strive to live a life that's honorable even to those who are unbelievers even to those who who don't see uh, life the way you see life In verse 18, he says, if possible, live peaceably with all. In other words, you're a person who's striving to get along with everyone. Now, there are some people who it seems like they're always looking for a fight. They're always looking to try to, 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 they're always mad about this or mad about, God's saying don't be that. Look, look to the degree that's possible. Live at peace with everyone. Don't try to be a, always looking for a fight. No, try, try to live at peace to the degree that's possible. Know that it's not always possible, but to the degree possible. Um, In verse 19, he says, never avenge, brothers and sisters. In other words, leave vengeance in God's hands. What this means is when someone has wronged you, instead of you deciding that you're going to make it right, leave it to God to make right. That's what Paul's saying. Leave it to God. 
And in a sense, that's another example of don't be overcome by evil. In other words, when evil's done to you, don't jump in and become a part of that. No, instead, you do good. You strive to, to feed your enemy. You strive to provide drink for your enemy who's thirsty. That, that's what Jesus is saying here. So how do we live a life, a genuine life of love for unbelievers? Well, first, we tell them about Jesus while living a life of integrity. We tell them about Jesus. That's the best way to love a person who's not a believer, but also to live a life of integrity like we see Paul talking about here. So how do we respond to those who are our enemies? Well, we pray for them. We seek their good. We don't endorse evil, but we do strive to show them the love of Christ. When someone harms you, leave justice in the hands of God. Don't try to get them back. Don't try to get them back. So try to live at peace with all people. Don't be unnecessarily difficult. So think before you press send. Think before you post. Think before you speak. Am I striving to live at peace with all people? Let God take care of making things right. That's not your your responsibility. It's not my responsibility. Try to live in peace with all people. Have you ever been around a dog that just had an aggressive, fighting nature? Anytime that dog was around another dog, he was growling, ready, to, ready for a fight. You had to hold him back. Been around, been around that? We don't want to be like that. We, we don't want to be like that as people. Always porcupinish with, with people. Always, ah, I got to keep your distance. We don't want to be those kind of people. That, that's, that's what the word is saying. We want to live at peace with people. And this is a strong, this is a very strong witness to those who are not Christians. So let's bring this back. Let's land the plane to the future of First Baptist Church. If Jesus doesn't return soon, what's the trend line going to be for First Baptist Church? Will we, by God's power, be unstoppable? Or will we be closing the door 30 or 40 years from now? It's not that First Baptist Church must exist. I've said this before, but it's that It's that we desperately want to see a gospel presence in Uvalde. We desperately want to see a people who are committed to God's glory here and committed to sharing the love of Christ with others. That's why the future of First Baptist Church matters. So over the last three weeks, we've suggested that this church has a bright future. If our members will live lives of true worship, lives that have been transformed, lives that are different. And we've said that First Baptist Church has a bright future. If our members will commit to humble service instead of staying on the edges and allowing everyone else to serve and to make this thing strong. We've said it takes every one of us exercising the gifts that God has given us. And I believe our church has a strong future if we'll commit to live a life of true love, a life of true love for God, a life of true love for each other, and a life of true love for unbelievers because God uses these realities to build his kingdom. So if you're a Christian, I ask you, will you pray to God and ask him to transform your life? Will you ask him to to shape you and to use you for his glory? If you're a Christian, I ask you, are you a committed member of a church family? And if you are a member of a church family, have you committed your life in humble service using the unique giftings that God has given you for the strengthening of the body? And if you are a Christian, are you committed to a life of love for God, for your fellow believers, and for those who are not Christians?
So let's give our all for the global spread of the gospel, for the global spread of the glory of God. Let's quit making excuses. Let's quit making rationalizations. And let's say, by God's grace, I'm jumping in. By God's grace, we're going to be the kind of church that God has called us to be for decades and decades and decades to come if, if the Lord Jesus tarries. So by his grace, may this church, for his glory, be unstoppable. It depends on, on you and it depends on me. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray that you'll help me as a pastor to lead in a way that honors you and to care for folks here well.